This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Ellen Kosick is the Basil S. Turner Professor at Purdue University's Krannert School of Management and the Research Director of the Butler Center for Leadership Excellence. Ellen is an internationally recognized thought leader on employer support of work and personal life integration, gender, diversity, human resource innovation, and social change. She's won a Work-Life Legacy Award for helping to build and advance the work-life movement. She's also won the Rosabeth Moss Cantor Work Family Research Excellence Award and the Sage Scholarly Achievement Award for advancing understanding of gender and diversity in organizations. Prior to becoming a professor, she worked on human resource issues for major corporations in the United States, Asia, and Europe. Ellen is the first elected president of the Work Family Researchers Network. And in this episode, Ellen and I talk about the different ways by which we manage interruptions or negotiate boundaries across different domains of life. Some people tend to integrate or blend. Some tend to be separators and others cycle between these two strategies. We talk about factors such as how work-centric or family-centric or dual-centric we tend to be, and also how much control we have over our boundaries. These three factors, boundary management, identity or orientation, how you think about the importance of work, family, or both, and control, over your boundaries. All of these affect our happiness and our productivity. And in her article, Managing Work-Life Boundaries in the Digital Age, Ellen provides a diagnostic tool you can use to assess your own preferred strategy. We also talk about research on ways universities are addressing burnout and strain induced by conflict between work and the rest of life. And Ellen responds to some callers who have some great questions that she provides her wise advice in response to. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I would so much appreciate it if you would rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from one of the truly great leaders in the field of work and life, it's Ellen Kosick. Ellen Kosick, welcome to Work and Life. Hi, Stu. Thanks for that introduction. It was as nice as one my mom might give me. <laughs> really? What would your mom say, Ellen? No, no. You say it all sounds weird, but it's nice to hear you. And you, you and I, have, I go long back, and I remember working on cases jointly at the Wharton mm-hmm. Roundtable with academics and practice. So I'm looking forward to today. 
So I think that's what we're trying to do is bridge research to practice. Yes, indeed. And and you've been really one of the main players in being able to do that. You are uh, truly one of the uh, top scholars in this field. Let me start out by asking you to tell the brief version of uh, the story of how you got into it. What, what brought you to the field of work and life research? Well, well, many years ago, I was a doctoral student at Yale University in the School of Management, and I had uh, a baby at the beginning of uh, my third uh, year, and I just had one class left. But at that time, Yale did not have maternity leave for faculty, let alone doctoral students. So they mm-hmm. congratulated me and said, well, you can take a uh, year off and reapply for your fellowship. And we, were, we didn't have a lot of money, so I stayed in, and I became passionate about this topic. Mm-hmm. And I actually finished uh, ahead of anybody in my class a year early. So wow. this is something I really care about personally and professionally, and I know it's a problem we still haven't solved in this country. That's for sure. So it was your personal experience that, that really motivated you to pay really focused and passionate attention and to b- bring your your great mind to, to this to this topic. And I'm, uh, I'm so grateful that you have because you have produced so much valuable work. And I want to dive into it because there's a, there's a few different uh, categories of work that you've done that are, I think, important for listeners to learn about. And I wanted to start with the whole issue of boundaries, which we talk a lot about on this show. And you've, you've done such important work in that, uh, on that particular topic, particularly in your, your, I think it's your last book, The CEO of Me, Creating a Life that Works in the Flexible Job Age, about flexible styles, different ways that people manage boundaries. I wonder if you could just give us a brief introduction to the concept of boundaries and you know, what the different kinds of boundaries are and how our knowing about them helps us to manage them. Sure, Stu. And I also have a, I wrote a free uh, article uh, called uh, Managing Work-Life Boundaries in the Digital Age. Mm-hmm. Where people can take a self-assessment. Um, so I think part of what it is, boundaries are really, uh, to me, an important concept because for so long we focused on work-family conflict and balance, and those are important but to me those are outcomes related to the different ways we manage the relationships and separation or not between Mm -hmm. work and personal life so i came up with a model that actually uh center for creative leadership also um has uh for training but i have Mm -hmm. a lot of free tools at purdue and i i think the way people uh today manage these relationships, it's difficult to separate unless you actively strive to do so, particularly in some companies where you're supposed to be on 24-7 and you're viewed as not supporting peers and customers if you don't respond to email. So there's three things that matter in our model. Okay. One is how you manage interruptions when you are uh, through technology or other interactions between work and non-work. So So, let me just jump in here, Ellen, and and help... uh uh, listeners understand that the the concept of boundary refers to the boundary between what and what. It's really how you manage relationships between multiple roles. Mm-hmm. So in the old days, uh, time helped us separate what was work and non-work, mm-hmm. nine to five, and you left the office. Mm-hmm. And today, with our ability to text or uh, you know respond to email, cell phone, 
we for many of us, not everybody, mm-hmm. uh, we could literally be connected to work twenty four seven. Some people uh, are. So it's really relationships between work and non-work roles. Mm-hmm. Well, we have other boundaries as well, um, and uh, it could be a relationship between not just your family, non-work, but how you manage interactions with organizations you volunteer with, nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So life is more complex, and what and uh, so boundaries are just really the degree to which you separate your different roles in terms of your attention, your energy. And uh, your your mental and physical uh, demarcations. The physical presence too matters, of course. So it's it's both in your mind as well as in your you know your physical presence as to whether you are in one role or the other. Or and so thank you. So now you were about to describe the different types that your model lays out. Well, one of the things. So the model we say that there are three things that matter in how you manage boundaries. Mm-hmm. One is uh, how you manage interruptions between these roles, mm-hmm. and not everybody does it the same way. Some of us will be checking our email from our family during a meeting when we're at work, and others of us will, will shut it off. So the former people are integrators, the others are separators. But they're also, um, I've found that they're cyclers for some people uh, during peak times of work, like accountants during tax season or people who are traveling globally, they're forced to separate, so I call them cyclers. So, so cycler, that's not like bicycler. That's people who cycle from one to the other? Exactly, and you have peaks and valleys. And mm-hmm. the problem is uh, it, it could be good uh, if you're in the work mode or the non-work mode of integrating or separating, but if you uh, sometimes are so burnt out, like you know, maybe doctors seeing kids at the beginning of the school year with tons of physicals and something might, you know, you just kind of can get burnt out. Or so, so interruption behaviors and the degree to which we're forced to separate or, or not is one aspect of managing boundaries. And there is some choice as professionals over that. But I, I will say I've also studied people in face-to-face jobs where they like have to lock up our cell phones. But for those of us, your listeners, that have a cell phone, work in a computer, uh, other forms of personal technology devices, you have a choice often in how you manage interruptions between work and, and non-work. So that's one part of the model. Ha. The other two aspects are just mm-hmm. uh, identity. Uh, are you more work-centric? Are you more family-centric? Uh, many of us today are dual-centric. We're high in both identities. And those values and identities relate to how much we're going to interrupt boundaries. And, uh, you know, if you're family-centric, you're more often to have uh, accessibility to family even when you're working. Mm-hmm. And then the third piece of the model is control over your boundaries. And some of us have a lot of control mm-hmm. over how we manage bound- the interruptions aligned with our identities. But other of us have jobs where we have little control. For example, if you're the only one in a particular role at your company and the computer system goes down, you're going to be called in the middle of the night. So those three things, identity, uh, the uh, control, and interruption behaviors I put together. Mm-hmm. And uh, previous research had just said you're either high or low on one or the other. And uh, the reason it's important to measure all three is if you're forced to ma- uh, manage boundaries in ways that don't fit with your values and identity, you then don't feel good about yourself, and you also probably are less productive 
at work in the long run mm-hmm. and in personal life. So the optimal scenario with respect to interruptions, your choice of identity, I'll say, and and the degree to which you have control over whether you are, uh, you, you know, you are in one role or the other. Um, what's the optimal scenario? How do, and how do people learn like what that scenario is? Well, so this is the fun part. Uh, we'd like to say there's one best scenario. Like we know we shouldn't text and drive, or you know you should be talking to your boss and trying to, you know, text somebody because your people think you're not paying attention. But what I've found is this is a diversity trait. And in any team or in any organization, you'll have a mix of separators, mm-hmm. integrators, and cyclers, and you will have variation in boundary control in, in teams. And there are pros and cons to each style. When you say variation in boundary control in teams, you mean some people in a given team might have more control than others? Exactly. And that's often linked to hierarchy. So the boss mm-hmm. often sets the culture for the team and how we manage boundaries. Are mm-hmm. people expected to check email on mm-hmm. Sunday night mm-hmm. to see if there's an early morning meeting? Are people expected to answer e- on vacation or be available? Or can you have an e-preve? So I, I, you ask, what's fun is I, in my workshops, and I've done them all over the world, I've even foreign governments have uh, worked with me because they're worried about burnout among people, and I hope in the U.S. we start caring about this even more, mm-hmm. is that I have people look at, uh, in their team, different preferences for how to manage boundaries and then how it uh, relates to how the team interacts in your career stage. So Hmm. one of the things I've been worried about is, uh, well, I think it is important to mandate, like, you know, no checking email over the weekends or texts. I'm worried in some way that could hurt people that are, um, have some other diversity attributes. So say somebody has a long hmm. commute because they want to manage a dual career marriage and they're living in between two cities, they might want to leave work at 4 o'clock but then go back online at night. Or people who have uh, children or elder care, they might want to pick up children at school and then go back online a little bit at the weekend to make up to make sure they work their 45-hour week. Uh, people with health issues that want time to go to the doctor or take time to exercise and not work so compressed in, in eight hours but spread it over 12. So uh, I, I run these workshops and people look at different preferences, and then you could look at how you manage technology and teleworking mm-hmm. and response time. So it's really, to me, a diversity attribute in how you're managing identities and technology. So... What have been some of the uh, more uh, sort of persistent and, and uh, gratifying results that you've seen as a, as, uh, as a consequence of these interventions, Ellen, in helping people to understand what, you know, what it means to be interrupted and, how, and the choices they make about being interrupted, about their preferences for focusing on work or, or family or perhaps something else, and how much control they have over their boundaries? What, what comes out of that work? So there's a number of things. So one is just a workshop I held with uh, supervisors at a university. Um, one manager said, you know, I just started sleeping with my work cell phone outside the bedroom at night. So that that's a physical boundary, and they started sleeping better. They were less tempted to look at work emails during the middle of the night and, and respond. 
Mm-hmm. Um, another is just teaching people about different ideas like um, uh, time buffers. So uh, one company where I did some training with the senior team, they were scheduling meetings back to back to back. And by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and often people were even double booked or triple booked, mm-hmm. people were pretty grumpy. Yeah. So they started putting the, in a 10-minute... Where's the nap time available? Yeah, for, well, and bio break. So they put in a 10-minute uh, uh, sort of bell that would be like a time trigger mm-hmm. yeah, between meetings, so ending at 10 minutes to the hour. And then people weren't uh, were able to, you know, just take a break, go to the restroom, and not be running from one meeting into another. So that's a, sort of work to probably work probably using their their fifty minutes better than they use the sixty. I'm guessing in terms of efficiency. Exactly. So time triggers, time buffers. Uh, one, um, I've ta- teach people or integrators the idea that even though we're tempted to to go back and forth and take that quick text from a friend, if you're doing something that's a really high-value work, you lose flow, so and you have process losses. So that's called switching costs. So we teach people mm-hmm. to try and turn off other uh, communications when they're focusing on a big project. So those are individual-level mm-hmm. tips for your view, uh, listeners. So once... A separator, always a separator, or are these, you know, are, these aren't really traits, are they? Or are they, I mean, I, I sh- my take on, on this literature is that these are sometimes situationally determined preferences, right or wrong? Um, so I th- I've had people come twice to the workshop where they want to make a uh-huh. change over your life. So oftentimes, if you're going through a career or life change, like you just got married or you're working more internationally now, mm-hmm. or you had a health scare, or mm-hmm. you just got a pet, or uh, you know some kind of new job, that's a good time to look at how you're currently managing boundaries, mm-hmm. and do you want to make a shift? And also, if you're, re, uh, you know, people have felt you're kind of burnt out and all you've given is too much to work, uh, some of those styles are called work-firsters, mm-hmm. and linked a little bit to workaholism, you're always letting work interrupt personal life. So you might then make decide, I want to do, make some changes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one fun exercise is to just write down, uh, there's 120 or 168 hours in a week. Look at how you're spending your time commuting, sleeping, being mm-hmm. online. Mm-hmm. And then look at how it's fitting with whether you're spending time on things you care more about and make some small changes to get an hour or two more mm-hmm. uh, and think to, devoted to what you love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that... That's similar to an exercise that I do that asks people to look at, you know, what's important and across the different parts of their lives and where their attention is. And, and it always sparks uh, ideas for innovation, for, for adjustment that allow people to gain a greater sense of control over, you know, acting in a way that's in accord with what they care about. And it makes a really big difference in how you think about yourself and how you feel. Exactly. And then just at the organization level, I have done mm-hmm. a training experiment mm-hmm. where some uh, uh, work sites, we train leaders uh, to be more work-life supportive for behaviors. Uh, and I can talk about those later on. I will ask you. And then the second group, we did a, a policy change on respecting time off. And we actually, this was uh, with people that worked in retail. Uh, the workers had to uh, lock up their their cell phones. But one other thing that was happening is a lot of the managers only had one day a week off, 
and employees were texting managers at home on their day off saying, can I have Saturday off in two weeks or where's the broom? So we taught workers to also let first-line supervisors alone, and we also tried to socialize the managers as part of the policy. Mm -hmm. You should really disconnect on your day off. Mm -hmm. So, so we, you know, there's some policy things that you can do that, that basically just give people a choice to disconnect or just not check work, e even if uh, it, it's, you know, unrelated um, or to uh, an emergency. That, that was the one exception. The company was a little nervous saying, you know, if, uh, if something breaks on the job, the manager better know about it, mm -hmm. even on their mm -hmm. day off. Mm -hmm. But the key is, is to enable greater freedom, right, Gr greater choice. It, it, yes, and then aligning when there is uh, interruptions uh, through the boundaries that it's something that's really urgent. You know, and mm -hmm. too often we expect everybody to be on all the time, mm -hmm. and so trying to vary this, not everybody has to be on 24-7. Yeah, and which has become the norm, and we have to fight against that consciously and deliberately to try to change that both at the policy level and at the supervisory level, as well as what individuals can do to make those changes, right? Yes, yes. And, and our results are kind of cool. Like we found that people uh, that felt more boundary control, so that, that is something about your job structure. Mm -hmm. Managers that went through this training on the policy change, they reported that their bosses also uh, respected them more for boundary control. So you can shift the the org design, organizational design to give people more control. So when you to, say they they were more respected for their boundary control, are you saying that their supervisors, their bosses were uh, were respecting the fact that they were creating these boundaries and were making yeah, they, themselves they, they, unavailable? We have our the bosses respected their time off. They they, they were ah. rated higher. So I think that's one other thing mm -hmm. your listeners can do is think about levels of management and how if you can have top managers or senior managers or, or managers really at every level, you get the, the highest group to start uh, giving people more respect for time off or control over boundaries, that has a positive domino effect down the chain. But ha what effect does it have on performance, which is what many people are thinking? Well, if I give people more time off, then they won't, I won't be able to meet my performance standards. Can't have that. Well, but th th we, we are finding performance things like uh, – caring more about intention to turnover, paying attention to mm -hmm. errors. Um, so having people on all the time actually is burning your people out. Mm -hmm. And for small, it makes the uh, uh, interactions focus more on high-value work. Mm -hmm. So that they are performing in a way that is, well, smarter. Is yes, that... exactly. I mean... One manager was on vacation, and somebody contacted them because a machine was broken. It's like, what do you want me to do from, you know, South America? There's not mm -hmm. much you can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's just being a little more mindful about uh, the intrusions that you perhaps don't have to make on other people's lives when they are not working. Let's. Uh, so, so that those are some wonderful ideas and tips regarding boundaries and boundary management and how to understand your own boundaries. Uh, and we'll put in the in the show notes uh, um, a link to where people can do their own self-assessment, but maybe you can just say quickly where that is. So that's at Purdue, and that's also in this article that was open source published in Organizational Dynamics called Managing, I think, Work-Life Boundaries in the Digital Age. All right. Now, you've um, written about 
healthy organizations. Can you say briefly what you think of as a healthy organization? Yeah, a healthy organization is one where the the work gets done, but people are also personally healthy and their families are also healthy as well. Pretty simple. Do you have a ready example that you're able to speak about? Yes, I was uh, part of a $30 million research team uh, called the Work Family Health Network that had many disciplines from public health researchers to family researchers, and we did a randomized experiment just like you might do for looking at uh, cancer drugs or other drugs where in some work sites the leaders and the employees were trained to culturally uh, support each other's work-life needs and also uh, get rid of low-value work such as meetings where things don't get accomplished. Mm -hmm. And then we compared... Uh, biomarkers and turnover and productivity and attitudes over 18 months to other work sites where there was usual practice, no training, no attention to supporting Mm -hmm. uh, employees' work-life needs. And we found many benefits both in high-end and low-end workforce, from nursing home workers to people that were on global teams working in information technology. When you say... Well, can you just one level further on, on what the the highlights of the results were in terms of the the positive impact of uh, these healthy policies and practices? Well, um, there were many results. There's like 65 papers. If you at University of Michigan archive the Work Family Health Study, and there's still studies coming out. Well, you found everything from job satisfaction, turnover intentions, people following safety rules, safety climate to physical things or or feelings of physical, like people would report less physical pain if uh, they viewed their boss was work-life supportive. And in particular, these effects were most for people that had some work-life needs at time mm-hmm. one. So mm-hmm. in some ways, you're making the workforce better for everyone, but in other ways, you're really getting bang for your buck uh, for people uh, with elder or child care uh, needs as well. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I found uh, for psychological well-being, we have this measure of psychological distress and mental health was better for what we call triple duty caregivers, people that are caring uh, for elders in the nursing home and they have uh, their own children mm-hmm. and their own parents. Mm-hmm. So, and that's the future. We are an aging workforce. Just before the break, we we were starting to talk about why don't we see more healthy organizations and you know the challenges of creating flexibility in different kinds of settings. Um, there are different kinds of implementation issues for different kinds of flexibility, and I gather that's what you're working on for your next book. Do I have that right? Sure, I do. And um, so I think um, it's time to look at flexibility 2.0. And uh, the way that we've implemented in the past has sometimes been an accommodation for uh, certain types of employees where if you used, uh, say, uh, reduced your load or uh, teleworked more than your peers, you were stigmatized. Stigmatized. That means? You were thought of as, like, uh, not a good person, not committed, Mm -hmm. uh, not on the career track. Mm -hmm. Something wrong with you. 
And we've been hearing a lot about gender and why people aren't getting ahead, mm-hmm. women and implicit bias. And I think how people work in these uh, some overwork cultures um, where you're supposed to work all the time as a professional, it's actually burning people out and you're, you're not keeping talent. So I, I go through different types of jobs and you can find flexibility uh, supports for every job. And I was just quoted in the Wall Street Journal last weekend on uh, the idea of uh, thinking about even for manufacturing, you can staff differently. We have a person that rotates between departments and uh, that way we know people get sick or sometimes don't show up, but you were able to cover ships. So Mm -hmm, I'm mm -hmm. just hoping we can think across all jobs to give some form of flexibility Uh, from the lowest minimum wage worker that needs to, uh, you know, take the bus to work and has a longer day to professionals that are uh, worrying about not even be able to to sleep during night because there's a global call. So it can't it can't just be about the uh, the knowledge class of of workers who are in professional environments. It's got a it really does have to cut across uh, the spectrum of uh, all kinds of labor for uh, for us to ha- be as a nation have the kind of health that. Uh, uh, a productive working life ought to provide. Exactly. Well, uh, so where where's the, the biggest source of resistance? Well, I think, um, I do feel that one thing we should change in the U.S. is to have some kind of basic uh, floor of rights mm-hmm. for jobs related to flexibility, like if you are seriously ill, you're able to go to a doctor's appointment and and miss work and not get fired. Mm-hmm. It's like we don't even have paid sick time for some jobs. Or uh, during pregnancy, or uh, you're able to go to regular checkups for your child. And, and so I, I think, I do hope some public policy will support this. And I think we're seeing the Silicon Valley companies mm-hmm. leading the charge on generous paternity leave and generous maternity leave, Mm -hmm. but I don't think we want to leave it totally in the hands of one industry. I think this is an area where public and private cooperation will make us a better America. I mean, we're really, you know, one of the few industrialized countries that lack paid leave and and formal support. A a topic we have addressed many, many times in our almost six years on the air, uh, addressing the questions uh, surrounding work and life. That's one of the saddest facts that we've had to recount so many times. But your work is is helping us to move in, in the right direction. Wendy is calling from Santa Monica. Hey, Wendy, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you. So I'm calling about the situation, and typically it's maybe with women who have uh, babies and maybe are taking off a few months and then negotiate maybe to work a few days a week. And um, I've experienced this from all angles. So I've experienced, um, for instance, if they're working three days a week, and a project is fluid, and I cannot reach them the other two days of the week or or something like that, or they even have a job share, um, it really causes a lot of communication issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering um, about 
what some successful solutions are. I've experienced successful solutions outside of corporate America, like in a situation where everybody's working with a part-time thing and we're all working online through like a base camp. But in a corporate situation where there's a team and a lot of moving parts, it's really difficult. And I haven't seen a working solution that doesn't put the burden on actually the people who are there. Mm -hmm. All right. And then I've I've also experienced the other side where you're uh, trying to work from home and you have that bias that you were talking about earlier. Wendy, that is a a wonderful question. Ellen, what does your work tell you uh, about the question Wendy's raising? Well, Wendy, I actually have a paper that was just accepted uh, called uh, Desperately Seeking Sustainable Careers, and it was uh, funded by the Alpha P. Sloan Foundation and 20 organizations that were corporations that had implemented reduced load work. And I think part of the challenges you raise are very real. I would argue that there are different cultures or ways to implement this, and perhaps your company might experiment more with two ideas. One is uh, whether uh, uh, the person that's working the reduced load, has there been enough uh, redesign as a collaborative process so it's not just, gee, you get to work two days a week at home and uh, to try and figure out how to uh, integrate communication styles or, or access with the team. So I would call that the integration challenge of the reduced load work. And then the differentiation challenge is if they're getting paid only for two days of work, then they shouldn't have to answer if it's not an emergency on Friday, but they should have a job share that's able to cover, or there should be someone else on the team that knows how to contact them. Or in those critical emergencies, and let's define what those are, they should be willing to to, uh, work on those days. So I think it's maybe troubleshooting more to identify what's not working. You've given some examples. And we did find companies that did a really good job of of integrating yet differentiating the reduced load workers. And work. what is it that they, what was most important in what they did that would, that enable them to, to handle the dilemma that, that Wendy's facing, which is, uh, you know, really not being able to communicate when needed with people who were on reduced workload when they were off? We found all different arrangements, but uh, the, the big idea that we found is did you really reduce the load or did you merely reshuffle the workload to, to others? So part of this might be, uh, you know, if you had five projects as a typical full-time load, many companies haven't even defined what a full-time load is, Mm -hmm. then the person working a 40% load or something should only have two clients. And then maybe that Wendy wouldn't feel like she's, you know, not being covered because they would have hired, uh, you know, an intern or Mm -hmm. another person that would cover that load. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe they haven't. Uh, redesign the job clearly enough to 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 decide to to make sure that the load's covered yeah. and come up with communication rules for you so you're not left holding the bag on the day off. So Wendy, I really appreciate that call. It's such a great issue, and it's you know, it's one thing to say you need to spend more time planning and thinking for, you know, thinking about the the different you know contingencies that you can foresee. It's another, of course, to then be able to see what's working, what's not, and to adjust, as, as Ellen is saying, uh, you know, how, you're, how you're staffing so that 
the needs the needs of the business can't be met. So there's no there's no free lunch here in the sense that you can just go to you know part time work for some people and not for others. That's a process that has to be managed because it it doesn't work well by magic. Wouldn't you agree, Ellen? Yes, I would. But I would also say there are lots of successful um, organizations down there. I know a law firm in one of the Carolinas that hires a cadre of lawyers that many are working part-time and they, they're assigned a certain number of clients. So I, I would just say maybe hold a team meeting, Wendy, and and uh, say, you know, here's what's not working, but, you know, do recognize if they're getting less paid, then we've got to just figure out who covers the work when they're not there. Good luck. Uh, let's take another call then as the phone lines are lighting up here. Barry from Atlanta is calling. Hey, Barry. How can we help you? Hey, how are you, Stu? My question is for Professor Ellen. Uh, uh, she mentioned um, how there being some sort of a floor. There should be a floor uh, for, uh, you know, work-life balance type of stuff. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, like majority of uh, people work for small businesses and they, you know, they're scraping by literally, you know, to use the floor analogy here. They, what, uh, what, you know, who should bear this burden of, uh, I know, should it be the government or the small business? And, like, how do they do business continuity when they're relying on that key individual mm-hmm. to, you know, do the work? And on, and I have another comment or question, uh, if you want to comment on it, is, uh, you know, American work ethics and uh, sense of duty and all that, you know, that you might find in Europe or, or in, um, you know, or, or Japan or whatnot, you know, any, any comments on that? Barry, that's, that's a, a great set of questions. Uh, thank you for offering them. Uh, Ellen, Professor Ellen Kosick, what, what do you think about what Barry's raised here? Well, I think you raise a good question that our culture is pretty uh, focused on uh, individuals and seeing, uh, you know, we don't see how helping One worker with their work-life needs will help productivity, but the reality is we are in big trouble in our economy. The fertility rates are dropping in this country, and if you're not replacing workers with new children or healthy workers, we're we're really moving where we're going to not be able to fund pensions, retirement, uh, Medicare, Social Security. So uh, the healthier nations worldwide have at least replacement rates of workers. Now, that being where you're having enough children being born to pay for the elderly and retirees. Mm-hmm. That being said, uh, California and I believe some other states, you may know, Stu, whether uh, it's New York, but there's some that are, are now having a way where if a worker's hired, there's some kind of dual payment where both the worker and I think the state matches or something uh, uh, to create this fund. So after a year or so, they're funded to cover some of the leaves. So I think there has to be some kind of dual payment system where the worker pays some, the government pays a little bit, and you know maybe there's a different deal for s- small businesses mm-hmm. than there are for larger employers. Maybe this is something that if you have at least 75 workers, you start having to cover. Yeah, and uh, if you listen to the episode uh, with Ellen Bravo uh, that's on our podcast website, workandlifepodcast.com, you, which uh, was last year, you can you can learn more about you know those those practices and what the different states are doing, including New Jersey, Rhode Island, and, and the successes that they're having. 
in in uh, you know multiple parties investing. It doesn't cost a lot, and it produces economic value. You get people staying longer, uh, particularly women coming back after they've taken leave, and it's it's uh, it's a boon uh, economically for virtually all parties. It, it uh, it's something that is we're seeing more and more of uh, variations of that kind of practice in different states and in municipalities around the country. What um, and, and thanks again, Barry, for for bringing those issues up. Is there anything else that you could offer, though, Ellen, for the small business owner in terms of the the steps that someone who is really often living on the edge of margins, you know, just barely enough to to eke out profit, how you can uh, you know creatively uh, you know support a healthy organization despite you know without a lot of slack resources? Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think one idea that I would love to see experiments would be to see if there could be small business consortiums where uh, somebody's in uh, uh, could share workers in some ways, uh, or share a, share a, um, someone that could cross train or or have uh, uh, cooperatives. Uh, I've seen in childcare, small businesses sometimes come together. Um, one example, a long time ago. Uh, was um, Steelcase, actually, it, which is a furniture manufacturer mm-hmm. in Michigan. This doesn't totally cover all the problems, but what they did is they trained spouses of employees to do family daycare to increase the supply of licensed child care in that community. And mm-hmm. that helped small businesses because there was reliable, good, inexpensive child care, mm-hmm. which also then reduced absenteeism. So I'm hoping that we can, without hurting our, you know, our ethic and our American individuality, think of some ways to cooperate on this because we are now lagging in uh, uh, gender equality. For example, we're 35th in the world, believe it or not, for gender equality. Our our wellness is uh, going down. Children's wellness rates we're we're not ranked at the top anymore. So something's got to give, mm-hmm. and I think this is one avenue to increase our health and, and economic well-being at the same time. Yes, and it's uh, you know, we're recording this in 2019, and certainly in the uh, the national elections coming up next year, this is going to be, we know, uh, one of the important issues that differentiates candidates, and it'll be very interesting to see how people vote on these questions at the national level as well as at the state and local level. Um, now, one of the ways that we think about the future, you and I, Ellen, is with respect to what happens in business schools and, and the people we're training to uh, to to pursue careers in, in the world of business. You did a, uh, a workshop recently for the NSF uh, on this issue of including work-life content in business schools. Can you tell us a little bit about what the big ideas were and what the uh, what the upshot was? Well, many of us look at professors and think that they have a cushy job. And what's happening now is many of our uh, scientific fields from business schools to STEM are not are burning out faculty. So I got together some leading minds to, to discuss some of the challenges and the, uh, the deans as well. And uh, basically, we're, we're not going to attract our best and brightest to teach your children or even model uh, your future employees 
how, how to manage work and life or if uh, the university can't figure it out. So we just got a, um, a grant that uh, we're going to look at how to improve uh, work-life boundaries and some um, ways to advance careers for people working at universities. So mm-hmm. it may, it may, it, the, the big idea, I guess, is to take the uh, ideas of diversity and inclusion and merge in some of these work-life challenges on boundaries and mm-hmm. I, supervisor support you'd ask me about. I, there are four behaviors that we found that you could just teach in terms of emotional support, role modeling, having good policies that we were just talking about with the cop callers before, mm-hmm. and being more creative and mm-hmm. how we uh, manage diversity in work and life. So our universities are big problems in uh, faculty burnout, more international faculty. This is going to hurt business if we don't uh, improve uh, the places where we're educating future leaders. Mm-hmm. I uh, couldn't agree more, and, and indeed, what we've been doing here at the University of Pennsylvania, I've been a part of a program since uh, about seven or eight years now that was originally sponsored by the diversity and inclusion you know, people in the provost's office that we call Penn Pathways, and it's about career development, leadership development, and part of that is uh, the first half of the first year, people do my total leadership program. It's all about creating harmony and integration among the different parts of their lives, and we're seeing Really great results. I'll, I'll post a link to that as well on the show notes for this show, and, and perhaps that's a conversation we can continue to have offline. Ellen, we're, we are near the end of our show here. Let me ask, um, what's the biggest lesson that you have learned personally from your research that, that's had the most uh, profound impact on you? Going, going back to where we began here with, with what motivated <laughs> you to start in this field. I, I think uh, a couple things. One is that I'm glad that I uh, didn't uh, totally take uh, time out or leave the workforce when things got tough mm-hmm. with work and life, finding child care for four children and trying to make tenure. I, I, so I would like to see us have more flexible options where you don't have to be all in at 150% steam or Mm -hmm. all out, but give more of these uh, sustainable career options to be a little more flexible over the life course. Mm -hmm. And uh, another is just that um, I think having empathy for others, because you can, when you're going through this as a young parent or with a dying elder, or you have a, Mm -hmm. a, a health issue, um, it, you know, it, it seems far away now, but I remember it was very hard. Um, and I, I just, part of this is just trying to remember it was hard for you and then be a good listener to your mm-hmm. coworkers. And, and, uh, you know, I think hopefully every generation we can become better at how we manage this. And I do think there has been some change, uh, in our society. And I, I am just personally hopeful for the future that we can be a leader again in how we treat and manage employees. Everyone was copying the U.S. and how we did this, and I actually got to go to Japan and all. I've been to probably over a dozen countries talking about work-life issues, and so that would be third thing. Is personally, I see a lot of action Mm -hmm. overseas and interest in what you and I 
do, and I would. I just hope it it continues to to gather more and more steam, such as through your show in the United States, because we are literally working ourselves to death. And um, you know, it's all there is a better way that can help our economy and help our nation feel happy and and our families do well. Indeed, and in, in your uh, remarkable career and, and incredible volume of such important research and practice has uh, really helped to move us in that direction. Ellen Kosick, thank you so much for joining me on the show tonight. Thank you for having me, and thank you to your listeners for caring about this issue. Where is the best place for people to find out more about your work? So I have a, a website at Purdue University. So you could just Google Ellen Kosick or Ellen Ernst Kosick. P-U-R-D-U-E, and I have a lot of publications online. Awesome. And thank you very much. I hope you found my conversation with Ellen Kosick to be informative and that it piqued your curiosity about how you might be able to better manage boundaries between work and the rest of your life, how you negotiate those boundaries. So here a challenge for you, an invitation. Assess yourself. Go to Purdue University's Cranert School of Business website to Ellen Kosick's page where you'll find a lot of cool stuff, including her article about managing boundaries, about integrators, separators, and cyclers. Learn about the different boundary management styles and see which one characterizes you best. Then, take up one of her ideas for action to better manage your boundaries and thereby improve your productivity and your well-being. Let me know what you discover. I would love to hear from you. So you can get in touch with me directly, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu, or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, total leadership. Be a better leader. Have a richer life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.